let me do the honors with Denise. I think, first of all, like kind of on a personal level, when I um, when I came across Denise's work and her book, uh, which is called The Myth of Capitalism, one of the things that really struck me was how much, rather than a dry discussion about how monopolies affect us, that it's, I think, a more of a connection with a real impact on the lives of working people and other people. And I think that's, that's one of the things that in my uh, mind really differentiates some of the work that, that Denise has done from other people in, in that space. As some of the discussion around this tends, tends to be a little dry sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so Denise um, is a founder of the, our senior fellow of the American Liberties, Economic Liberties Project, uh, which has that charter of, of trying to remedy kind of the negative impact that monopolies have on our lives. And she's also a co-founder and advisor of the First Principles Forum, which works with uh, tech entrepreneurs, tech founders who want to use their wealth for good on the investing side. So uh, interesting to hear about that. And she's a thought partner and activator at funds and helps and supports women entrepreneurs um, that are building uh, social or, or impact businesses. So and in addition to all that, she's co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, which, as I mentioned, is a book about the impact that monopolies have on, on our lives. So. Uh, with that introduction, I will turn it over to Carrie. I'm sorry, to Iman. Thank you, Diego. Um, hi, my name is Iman Ismail. I'm a junior at Georgetown University in Qatar. So not the DC campus, a smaller one. I am originally Sudanese, but born in the States and currently calling in from Kenya. So it's great to see you guys here at night, <laughs> which is fun. Having lived in, the, in developing countries and within the developing world, I find myself really interested in the unsustainable ways that markets harm and filter in too many third world countries. So I'm really excited for today's discussion. And just to introduce VOICE, VOICE stands for Voice of Generation Z. We're a collective of college students trying to do right by consumers by providing well-informed sustainability reviews on products. Denise, you, you sent us some comments on an Apple product, which is recently reviewed, which, are, which is really cool to hear back from you on that. And we'll delve into that conversation later on. We're also working towards bridging the gap between consumer knowledge and environmental education. Yeah. So, Carrie, go ahead. Hi, Denise. It's great to meet you. I'm a junior at Cornell. I'm studying English. And like what Iman said, I'm also very much interested in the intersection between social and environmental justice. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about your book and many other topics um, concerning stakeholder capitalism. And I'm from Seoul, Korea, but today I'm calling in from Ithaca, upstate New York. So excited and to talk to you. Before you go on, I just wanted Emily Vanstein is also on, who basically helps direct our speaker series. And so she's, she's organizing and making everything happen. So I'm really happy to have her on. Thanks, Emily. And, and thanks, Carrie and Iman. So wonderful to meet you. And thank you for, for being here so, so late in the evening and taking your evening to, to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to meet both of you and, and to be here. Yes, thank you. So our first question is, on LinkedIn, we've noticed that you say in your spare time, we can find you singing, delighting in nature, and breaking conversation norms at parties. <laughs> I wanted to ask you specifically about the last part. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like I'm putting too much pressure on myself now because I, I, people expect me to be interesting by, by that description. But I just, I'm, I don't really like small talk. So usually when I meet someone at a party, I'll shock them or by asking them instead of like, what do you do? I'll ask them like, what makes you feel alive or what makes you flourish or something like that. And it's interesting how, how difficult it is for people to sort of get out of the rote conversations that we're used to having in those kinds of scenarios. And 
that one of my favorite authors is Annie Dillard and she has this line where she talks about going to a party and trying to tell someone about a caterpillar and, and how they walk away sort of befuddled. And she says, I'm trying to save your life. I'm trying to talk about the really important things in the world. And so that's, that's kind of how I like to show up in spaces often. I also really despise small talk, so I can relate to that. <laughs> nice. I have one more question about parties. When, sure. you, when you meet people that work at monopoly firms, what do you say to them? <laughs> How do they respond? Carrie, that's such an astute question because I live in Seattle, and so I meet a lot of people that work for Amazon, and, and then sometimes they say, what do you do? <laughs> and then I have to say, well, I actually wrote an anti-monopoly book, and then they put two and two together. <laughs> Yeah, that they usually make a beeline for the bar, the chip line or something. But no, I think actually it strikes up a lot of good conversations. And I think what I've learned as well, just from being here, is that many people see the problems. And even if they're working within the firms, they really understand and see the problems. But a lot of people are making their own personal decisions. They have families to support or debt to repay or whatever. And so I don't judge anyone's choices for why they choose to work in particular areas. I just think that I want to raise the conversations that we're having today to really help policymakers and help other key decision makers really think through these issues in a meaningful way. That's great. And I think it's, it's really important what you mentioned about not being judgmental when you're discussing what people work in and what their passions are. And I think, and you also mentioned your book, which I think would, will bring us into a question I'm sure you often get which is what prompted you to write this book and, and sort of what's the journey that led you um, to writing it as well? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Iman. So I was working in London. So, well, to backtrack, I did a master's, I did a master's of business in the UK at Oxford. And I, to be honest, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I'm still, don't let anyone pressure you to figure your life out at this point. I'm still figuring mine out, but I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I ended up meeting my co-author, Jonathan, through a mutual friend. And he said, why don't you come and work for us? And they, he ran a macroeconomic research firm that sold research to hedge funds and family offices and institutional investors and high net worth people that wanted to understand markets, financial markets, so that they could better invest their money. And I really was not that interested because I thought, I don't want to go work for some firm that's going to just make hedge funds richer, you know, but, but I, to be honest, I was kind of desperate and I wanted a job in London. And so I said, okay, whatever, I, I'll just give it a try. I'll learn something along the way. And, and I really trusted everybody that I worked with. Like they were, they were people of a high degree of integrity. And so I ended up working for them for three years. And during that time, Jonathan and I were having a lot of discussions because some of the indicators that we were using with clients to advise them, and particularly one of our indicators was meant to give you an advanced reading on where wages were going to go in the U.S. And that's important to investors because wages often are the, the inverse of corporate profits, right? If wages are going higher, that means that corporate profits are likely going to be going lower, which would infect your investment. And so we had this indicator that said that wages were supposed to rise and the data kept coming in and wages were not rising. And they, they, were, they were basically creeping along sideways and in some cases sort of trending downward. And, and so eventually we had to admit that our indicator was broken, that there was something wrong with it. And there was something structural that we had missed in the economy that we weren't accounting for. And then I also personally was, I started my career in the nonprofit sector. I've always been very animated by a desire for social and environmental justice. And so I was really interested in trying to understand why inequality was 
as bad as it is right now in the world. And not just sort of the typical conversations that we have around inequality, like, oh, CEOs are paid too much or these types of things, but it was really trying to understand the structural drivers. Why is this? What are the mechanisms that produce this kind of reinforcing inequality? And it was through those conversations with my eventual co-author that he said he had written a couple of books before. And so we started researching together and he he was like i really think that this could be our, my next book and would you like to co-author it with me and i was really interested in going on that learning journey of trying to use the book as a as a learning process i think some people think that you approach writing a book because you think that you have all the answers and you want to get it out on paper and actually what i'm finding now is writing is much more of a process of your own learning and then i heard this great quote the other day that said books are never finished they're they're just abandoned and i think that's very true because it's really just a moment it just captures a moment in time of your current thinking and even since the book has come out my thinking has advanced a lot in the last two years and i don't even there's some things i don't really resonate with in the book anymore so anyways it's i, I think that writing is like that though it helps you clarify your own process yeah i think that's, that's really really cool because it's nice to see that you've worked very intimately within that system and then you learn more about it through that journey where you where you take in this information and then you develop further and then it not only applies to your past self but your future self as well it's also interesting to see that it didn't just emerge out of a hate for capitalism or an anger towards it you know ultimately there was a story that existed within that and then before that as well mm -hmm. yeah and okay so carrie if you want to jump in Oh, I was just gonna say, it's really funny how you mentioned that, like, you never finish a book, you just abandon it, because my creative writing professor told us the same thing. Like, oh, really? Professor, yeah, <laughs> just rang true with me. That's great. Iman, I was just I gonna, maybe I'll, I'll follow up on what you said around capitalism. I think part of, you're exactly right, that part of my desire was really to understand what I felt about capitalism, actually, and try to investigate it intellectually in a way that I hadn't really previously before. And I have a lot of like complex, I think, feelings or perhaps nuanced is maybe a generous term, but I have a lot of nuanced feelings about terms like capitalism. And part of the reason why we titled our book, The Myth of Capitalism, is because even if you disagree with it or you are a huge proponent, what we tried to prove in our book was that what we think about when we say the word capitalism, which is, you know, unfettered free markets and private property and markets that are unconstrained and things like this. It's not actually an accurate picture of what we have in the US, certainly, and in many places around the world. And so even before you get to the conversation about whether you like or dislike capitalism, you have to start from a place of truthfulness to admit that the systems we have right now are not the systems we envision in economic textbooks when we talk about capitalism. And so that's why we titled it The Myth of Capitalism. And then from there, you can actually have an honest conversation about whether things should change. But you can't say that the US is a capitalist society because the, the way it currently operates, it's not. It's not free, it's not unconstrained, and it's really controlled by a handful of small firms and by a lot of different things that impede markets from actually operating in the way that they they do in theory yeah and so in this in, in engaging with the topic of monopolies and and something that may be perceived as controversial um, or problematic because that's essentially what a society's market runs on did you have any particular fears 
in engaging with sort of this, this information, this complex series of information, and then having to present it to an audience that may not necessarily be um, aware of what lies under under the surface of what would be perceived as a capitalist society. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we were more. I don't think we were fearful. I think that by the time we compiled all of the research, because we read hundreds of academic papers and different things. And so the way that we tried to make our argument was based on a lot of data. So it was, it's kind of hard to argue with, right? When you amass that amount of evidence. And so I think that for the most part, we got really good responses to the book. I would say I do still have that fear. Recently, I just, uh, this week or last week, actually, I presented to a really, really large, like multi, multi multi-billion dollar investment management firm about the book. And I was less concerned about the themes that I discussed in the book, because now I think they're actually fairly, there's been a lot of writing since, and there's been a lot of press around big tech being broken up and things like that. So it's, it's more common for people to sort of know about it, but I did, I did go a little bit further afield into some of my new thinking and there I was a bit more cautious and nervous about, about the response, but it seemed to go over. Okay. But I do think that it is difficult for people to face their own paradigms. And that's what we tried to, I like helping people really rethink their paradigms and the foundation of their knowledge. And so sometimes that can be a scary process for people to engage with. Earlier on, you touched on how there's an inherent tension um, present in capitalism in the sense that you have to balance corporate profit against workers' wages at one, at one point. So we wanted to pose a question. Do you think capitalism could be reshaped to be sustainable? Which I think your book tries to answer. Did you touch upon that? Yeah. This is such a good question. <laughs> and... Maybe I'll answer it by saying, I came up with this framework the other day that helped me understand the different ways that people approach this conversation. And so it might be helpful for your understanding. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. So what I came up with was that there's sort of four predominant categories of how people relate to capitalism. The first is believers, right? So they're they, they believe in free market capitalism, they believe in trickle-down economics, they believe in kind of all the things we talked about earlier about how the invisible hand of the market will what is the best way to organize for social good. And, it, and they generally want government to interfere as little as possible in that process. So those are the believers. Then there's the reformers, and reformers think capitalism isn't fundamentally broken. It just needs some tweaks around the edges. So maybe we need to, maybe we need stakeholder capitalism. Maybe we need ESG investing. Maybe we need to do some regulatory reform, like anti-monopoly stuff, to help curb the excesses of capitalism. Or we need to inspire moral leadership of CEOs that will really advance social and environmental causes. So that's that's in the reformer category. And then there's what I call apostates. And I use religious language because I think that the world is built on ideas and capitalism is an ideology. And so you either, you're a believer or you're not a believer in this, in this sort of system of ideas. And so the term apostates refers to people that have sort of totally backed away from capitalism and they say, no, it's a, it's a flawed system right from the beginning. And this is where we typically will talk about socialism as the opposite ideology, even though I think that the, that dichotomy is a little bit unfair in some ways, but I think most people would see socialism as sort of the opposite of capitalism. And I think there's a lot of people that have some really great and very thoughtful policy recommendations and various things, but 
still to this day, it's still a little bit politically unpalatable. So that's why I call call them the apostates because they're they've sort of gone against the traditional status quo. And then there are the prophets. And the prophets are people who ask us the really paradigm shifting questions that are at the base of everything, right? And and the apostates do this too, but the prophets say things like, well, is it reasonable or is it beneficial for us to build an entire system based on interest-bearing debt, where most religions have outlawed that for many years? And, it, and even today in, in Islam, that's why you have Sharia finance and different things like that that tries to get around debt as an instrument, uh, interest-bearing debt. And they may ask us things like money actually is what is used to exchange all of the things that don't fall in the category of love or the gift economy. The things that are like a little bit esoteric that are seen as like fairly out there or hey, the environment itself has its own set of rights and we shouldn't actually put a monetary value on the environment. We should, we should have them sort of be fundamental parts of how we think about, well, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But so basically the prophets ask us these very difficult questions that, that in some ways are very forward, forward looking and sort of call us to a reality that seems so far out of the, the realm of possibility, but it, it starts our imagination thinking in different ways. And so I think that the reformers, the apostates and the prophets all have a role to play in helping us envision new systems. And I think that typically the reformers tend to be more incremental. So they want like smaller changes to try to get us incrementally towards a different future. And the other two categories tend to want to say like, break the existing system, build it from scratch. And I think that both are necessary to, to be honest, because, because I don't think that incrementalism will get us there. But I also think that sometimes you need to build the scaffolding for what can come next. And sometimes that does look a little bit incremental. So I don't know, I'm still answering this question. Sorry, this is a very long winded way of answering your one question, but I'm still trying to um, decide exactly what I think about that question, whether capitalism can be reformed and reshaped or whether we need to really think totally differently about how we, about how we build our systems. Please feel free to be long-winded because that was incredibly interesting. Um, oh, I also thanks. really appreciate, <laughs> of course, um, I also really appreciate and I'm in, I'm in awe of how much research and the depth of knowledge that was acquired. And as personally, as a Muslim, seeing that you went into the religious conversation and the religious discussion, I think I, I, I further appreciate sort of the, the amount of work and effort that went into this book. And then you mentioned earlier reshaping people's paradigms. And I thought that was that was really interesting. And I feel like you touched on it a little bit by sort of categorizing people and showing them what paradigm do they already exist in and how can they move out of it. And so with regards to this paradigm, could you elaborate on what your goal was with showing people that that existed and showing them how to move out of it, how and how you hope to accomplish it, and as well if you feel like you were successful in doing so? Well, I just came up with this like two weeks ago, so we'll see. <laughs> We'll see whether it's successful. I'm going to try to write a piece about it and see what traction it gets. But I did use that in my presentation to the big asset management firm. And yeah, and then I asked them where they thought they they fell. And I would imagine most of them fall in the believer category. So that might have been a little uncomfortable for them. But yeah, but I think that you know, I think with all of these things, and of course, that's like an imperfect way of describing because people have many nuanced views. But But I think with all of these things, it's just helpful for us to try to unpack our own assumptions and really learn from other people's perspectives. And I think that that's, unfortunately, that's 
one of the things I do see slipping away a little bit right now is the ability to empathize with another person's point of view and really try to make a, a well-informed sort of 360 view opinion before. But I mean, this is what Vaz seems to do really well. And I, I really appreciate the work that that you're doing with, with trying to take a deeper look underneath existing issues and not sort of just take what what companies say or what investors say about about a company at first blush and and really try to dig deeper and, and understand understand systems and how and how a lot of these companies are like i don't know one example that is just coming to mind which i think is so interesting is like i was looking the other day and there's a group called morningstar and they do a lot of ratings and of different companies and they have this index called the minority empowerment index right and the second holding the, their second like biggest holding in that fund is amazon and if anybody spent two seconds thinking about that they might think that there it's a little bit strange that amazon is the second holding in this supposedly minority empowerment index right but they only look at it through one lens which is how many people of color do they have as employees, which really doesn't, it's not, that's first order thinking, right? It's very simplistic thinking. It doesn't go into the, the systemic effects. It doesn't go into second order thinking. And so what I see that you guys are doing is really asking much deeper questions than even some of these biggest investment rating houses around. And so I really applaud you for doing that. And, and I think that it's really, it's really important for us to evaluate our own assumptions in that process. And, and so, yeah. Glad to see you doing that. Thank you. Yeah. I, it's it's very encouraging to hear. And I mean, we're, we're trying, we're out here trying. And not only is, uh, changing the assumptions of others, but also changing, challenging our own assumptions as well. And I wanted to ask one more paradigm question before we move on, because the, the description of your book reads that it talks about how America has gone from a an open competitive market, which would I essentially believe would be would be a capitalist society into one held by very few powerful companies. And with regards to that, I was wondering, was there a specific uh, time frame in which that shift occurred, seeing as it was a macro scale, macro scale paradigm, or was it sort of something that just has, has happened previously and continues to happen as opposed to occurring within one time frame? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I think when we're specifically talking about sort of competitiveness and, and market concentration, there is a clear line of when that had started to shift. And that was really in the 1980s. And part of the reason is that there was this very specific intellectual capture and desire on behalf of like this is where you really see that the world is completely organized by ideology, right? And which is, which I think is very encouraging because it means that we can change it. The world is constantly changeable and open to us shifting paradigms and shifting the way that things are organized. But what happened in the 1980s was there were some well, uh, there were some well-funded universities and things that essentially I mean, and also under, so under Reagan, there was sort of like the neoliberal movement, which was deregulation. Again, markets should be the predominant force organizing the world. And so a couple of things happened. One was that they relaxed the merger guidelines, which meant that it was much easier for firms to merge and to acquire other firms. And so that unleashed this sort of wave of different mergers and consolidation. And so if you think about an industry where it's like, it's like any sports elimination competition, right? Where it's like the sweet 16 in basketball and then you go down to eight and then you go down to four and then you go down to two. It's like that was happening in every industry. Um, 
where they would just buy up smaller and smaller competitors or merge with their rivals and then eventually you end up with only a couple of, of firms at the top of every industry. So that was happening. And then what was also happening was this intellectual capture for the regulators like the Department of Justice and the um, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which used to approach antitrust from through the lens of really thinking about corporate power. So we want to make sure that the state can appropriately challenge corporate power. And they changed that to say, actually, when you're evaluating a merger or evaluating competition issues through antitrust, you should really only look at it through the lens of consumer pricing. And so if, if a company merges with another company and they lower prices for consumers, then it's great if it, it, there's no problems here. And that's, that's an ineffective way of doing antitrust for a couple of reasons. One, because when think about the technology firms, right, many of them came to power offering totally free products. So for years and years and years, they were allowed to sort of like amass as much power as they wanted because they're saying, oh, this is so great for consumers. Look at Amazon. They deliver packages to your door before you've even thought about ordering something. And, 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 and so it was very difficult to challenge to challenge the corporations through antitrust because they had already been captured by thinking about it in such a narrow lens. And then that really ignored a lot of the other issues that we've talked about, like workers, workers rights and worker power, worker bargaining power, or suppliers, suppliers to Amazon, third party sellers on Amazon, these sorts of things. They, it, it sort of, it narrowed it to such a degree that they really forgot about the original intent of antitrust law, which was really to challenge corporate power. And then the other thing is we're all, I am not just a consumer, right? I am a citizen, I am a worker, I am all these multifaceted things. And I don't just care about corporate power because I want cheaper goods. I care about corporate power because it influences democracy. And, and I think finally we're starting to see a resurgence of the regulators start to adopt the previous framing when antitrust was originally came in in the early 1900s. And so they're starting to use this language again of really having it be the countervailing force against consolidated corporate power. And so I think that's a really positive step. But yeah, it was definitely in the 80s and 90s that we saw a lot of this start to shift. And then now 40 years later, we're seeing all the consequences of that, right? And the high inequality, the lack of competition. We're, in the U.S., actually, we consider ourselves very entrepreneurial, but we actually have some of the lowest rates of, of startups and what they call business dynamism. And so, yeah, you can see economy-wide the kind of far-reaching consequences that that ideology had. And thankfully now, I think there's much more energy around trying to shift it. It makes me think of a statement I heard a while back that said America is no longer a democracy, but an oligarchy. What do you think about this statement? I think it's true. Yeah, I do think it's true. And it's, it's not just because it's like the evidence is there. It's not because it's like you're some crazy leftist. It's because it, when you look at the macro data, that's what it says. It says that industries are extremely concentrated um, and wealth is extremely concentrated and asset ownership is extremely concentrated and that all of these things are self-reinforcing. So now you see in the, in the coronavirus, things are getting worse, unfortunately, right? Because now firms are struggling, firm, businesses that were struggling previously or maybe were okay, now they're distressed. And so other larger companies are buying them up 
cheaply. Obviously, so many people are struggling with unemployment. While meanwhile, the stock market is rising and rising and rising, and we've seen that the some of the richest people in the U.S. have now, I mean, they've like doubled basically their. I, I, I can't remember. I saw a chart the other day, but they've they've doubled you know their um, income during coronavirus because the stock market has continued to rise. The tech firms have been they've acquired more companies during coronavirus this year than they had during the dot com bubble of the early two um, thousands. And so. You know, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm really concerned. Like, unfortunately, coronavirus is making a lot of these dynamics much, much worse. And so, yeah, so I think it's, and then you see Citizens United as well, where corporations can actually give to political parties is problematic. So you see that corporations now have this ability, and not just corporations, but very wealthy individuals have the ability to influence democracy in the ways that they want to see that happen. And, and so I think that statement is very reflective of what we're seeing today. So in connection to that, why do you find that people are so enraptured by the idea of the American dream, despite this increasing industry concentration? And do you think the growth of monopolies has made this idea impossible? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I think I mean, I think it's very psychological. I think people are drawn to the the idea of the American dream because we all want to, of course, like make something of our lives and and have a system where we feel like it's built on meritocracy. So if you work hard, you're going to get ahead and you're going to succeed. I'm actually Canadian by birth, but I, and I've lived around around the world. But I think most Americans haven't really dealt with the fact that they've never had a meritocracy, particularly for people of color and for women in the U.S. and particularly for Black Americans. It's never been a meritocracy in the U.S., right? But we are, we sort of have this idea that it, that it is. And, and so I think it's very hard for people to give that up. But I think, again, the data is showing that we're the first generation, my generation and yours is, the, is kind of the first that will in, in a few decades that will be worse off than our parents in, in the sense of like, it's likely that we will earn less. It's likely that we will save less. We have to save way more for retirement than ever before because interest rates are so low. So I do think that there's many things that are making the American dream much harder for people to, to achieve. And industry concentration is definitely one of those things, but I think there's many factors. It's like the student debt, it's, it's, it's everything that makes it very, very challenging structural barriers that prevent people. Because I think the, we like the American dream because it's like, you can overcome all the odds, you know? But it's like the odds now are so high that stacked against people that you have to be like exceptional. You have to, you have to like maneuver your way through this system to such a degree that's nearly impossible. And that's not, that's not what we want. That's not the society we want. We want to have an actual even playing field where people can be like a true meritocracy, right? Where people actually maybe will not have equal outcomes, but there's equal opportunity. And right now we're so far away from equal opportunity that we can't truly say that, that, we, that the American dream is, is possible based on that. And so meritocracy of society, essentially from what you said, is it's a fable, a fantasy, and an illusion from within the American context. But I wonder from outside of that context, we, we received a question from Elisa who asked, do you think that there are any true meritocracies in the world? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, it's, I think it's harder to say like 
within a particular nation of like this nation is more representative of a meritocracy than than this nation. I think it probably happens more in specific clusters, maybe in in particular companies or industries or things that embed the values in different ways. And I think we can probably all in our own lives reference examples where we feel like maybe it's in a classroom setting where you feel like one classroom was truly meritocratous in terms of who got called on and whose ideas were elevated and other classrooms where that wasn't the case, you know, so I think that it, it actually tends to happen more perhaps in smaller clusters versus being able to say this nation versus this nation. But I do think that, but I do, I do think that it's something that we need to continue to strive towards. And I think that there's no, there's no country in the world that's a perfect example of this by any means. That feels like a cop-out, I don't know. Thanks, I'll have to think about it more. <laughs> so recently, um, you've been quoted in a Wall Street Journal article concerning the breakup of Facebook. So, well, first of all, we wanted to ask you, like, why did you decide to focus on big tech specifically? And also ask you whether you think big tech has any significant effect on mental health and in sidelining certain communities. Mm. I thought you were going to ask me if I had a Facebook and I was excited to say no, but <laughs> um, I did for many years, but I finally got off of it. But uh, yeah, I, so I actually don't focus specifically on tech in my personal life and in my work life right now. I think that's, that's one of the areas that the Congress and its, its subcommittees have taken on, I think because of the challenge that it, that tech poses to democracy, particularly to elections as we're, as we're seeing and various things. But I think that actually there's many other industries that are even more problematic in terms of economic inequality and things like agriculture and things like pharmaceuticals and insurance and the hospital systems and things like that are much they have a much more profound impact on the everyday experience of average Americans. But I think tech, because we're always, we're, it's so much a part of our daily lives, I think it's sort of easier to relate to in, in one sense. And so you were asking whether I think that it, it marginalizes certain groups. And I'm sorry, what was the second question that you asked again? Well, we also wanted to know whether you think it has any significant effect on mental health in general. Oh, right. Yes, most certainly. I mean, again, has, has anyone watched the, the new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma? Emma, it looks like you have. I know a couple of the people in the movie, or at least like I've met them and they're kind of generally in my circles. And yeah, but I think that the, I think, I think a lot of what they talk about in there is very true. I mean, they talk about how suicide rates have um, really gone up quite a bit for young teen teen girls and that mental health is mental health issues are on the rise and when they look at the data they can see that the when the charts started going up it was basically right around the time that social media became a widespread phenomenon and i do think that it's very particularly for younger both men and women like girls and boys that it's just so hard like you you haven't fully developed a sense of self yet i mean all of us struggle with this and it's just an immense amount of pressure and then also i think the the other thing is that all of these um social media and other other technologies were built basically to keep you on the apps as long as possible because then they could deliver more ads and then their revenue goes up right and so they're built to be addictive and they actually play on this they play on all of the worst sort of 
tendencies of our addictive mind in terms of the dopamine hit. And the reason why you, when you pull your phone down to refresh it, I mean, they built it like that because it feels like a slot machine, right? Where you're like, what's going to come up? Am I going to get the email? Am I going to get a notification? And all of these things were built very intentionally to play on the, the weaknesses, the mental weaknesses that we have for the express purpose of, 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 increasing profit essentially. And so I do think that of course we're seeing mental health repercussions from that and people being un unable to disconnect and go back to regular lives. My, my husband and I try to institute a no screen Sunday. So we try to not turn on our computer or turn on our phone on Sundays. And even that feels so challenging, you know, I mean, it's crazy, but, but anyway, so I'll get to your, this, the other part of your question too, which is does tech marginalize certain groups? And again, I think all, all you have to do is like, look at the evidence and the data and the, it's very clear that it is true. There's a woman named Joy. I always forget how to say her last name, but she works, she, she started something called algorithms of justice or the justice algorithmic league algorithmic justice league i was again sorry should have looked her up before but um but she has talked a lot about how even things like many facial recognition technologies as an example were trained on white faces and so they actually have they're much worse at recognizing faces of color particularly black faces and and that actually there's been real problems with that because then the they will misidentify and then it like gets into police forces are using, starting to use this type of technology. And actually it's like mis, misidentifying people who are suspects in crimes. And this is like extremely bad and not something that we want. And, and yet because of the way things are built, we tend to think of when we think of words like algorithm, or we think of things like data, we think that they're just static and sort of inherently true, but it's not. They've, they've been built by humans. And so there's there is definitely bias that is built in and not intentionally always, but just, we don't even realize it's like, oh yeah, if we, if all, we're all white developers sitting around and we only trained our algorithm on white faces, of course, it's going to have problems, but nobody sort of thinks about that ahead of time. Right. And so that, and then there's also, I mean, there's so many examples, but I guess I'll just stick with that one for now. Cause I've been rambling for too long, but, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think that that is, is a problem and there certainly are groups that are working on it, but I think it's, yeah, it needs a lot more attention. I'm so happy you mentioned Joy uh, Bulomini because I actually, I met her last year. And oh, the work is incredible. Yeah, she came for, in Qatar, they have a Doha debate and they invite like speakers to talk about big tech. And so it was, what was interesting is like that, that discussion and then what she mentioned about how they're changing in additional policies as well. The way they're trying to adapt technology to suit individuals and then individuals using technology for the sake of the justice of individuals as well, as Joy is doing. And so we previously, you were sent a voice review on Apple and its front as the most sustainable company in the world. There's, there's certain irony in using social media to critique big tech, but we'll leave that for another time. But we did want to ask, do you believe that companies, especially big tech, start out with sustainability in mind? Or is it a result of, of, changing, um, of, of changing trends, which lead into greenwashing? Yeah, um, I think that I think it can be both. I mean, there's certainly companies like Patagonia, which is the other example that people always use. But those clearly those values of sustainability and environmental consciousness and, and things were sort of baked in from the beginning. And I think more and more companies that want to do that are being a, given the opportunity through B Corporation certification or 
where you can actually incorporate essentially you, in your legal structure and your legal statute, you can incorporate as a benefit corporation, which allows you to go beyond simply your fiduciary duty um, to shareholders. And you can actually identify in your corporate charter different values that you want to emanate. So I think that there, there are certainly companies that start out really wanting to do that. And then there are others for which they, yeah, I think that they, that it's perhaps more of an afterthought. And I think the stakeholder capitalism movement is kind of interesting right now because clearly there's been a lot of talk and it's, it's gotten a lot of press and Jamie Diamond and, and all of these folks are proponents of it. But you, then you see where it can become problematic. And even, I guess I'll give one example, is Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, right, has been a very, very vocal proponent of and saying that we're going to start taking action against companies that are not making progress on, on climate and things like that. And so he sort of positioned himself as the bastion of a lot of this new thinking around needing to embed different values. But then often you really need to dig below the press releases and see what actually is going on. And, and they recently were criticized uh, BlackRock because Apparently, they voted against 80% of climate-related initiatives as, as a proxy shareholder last year, or as a majority shareholder. And, and so it's, it can be very disheartening, but I think we constantly need to look at sort of the actions that corporations take versus what they say that they're doing. Another big thing right now, of course, is all of the companies sort of doing this performative pledging around Black Lives Matter. And one of the biggest ones that happened recently was JP Morgan, right? I think it's like, oh, we're donating or we're not donating, but we're redirecting $30 billion towards racial equity. And when you, when you actually dig into it, it's like, well, <laughs> some of that is they legally have to do because banks are legally required to do something called community, it's the Community Reinvestment Act. So they have to give away a certain portion of their, of their profits every year in the communities that they operate. So they lumped that in there. So it's like, good job, but that's actually legally required of you. And then, and then other things were like, oh, well, we're gonna expand essentially our mortgage lending and different things like that. And it's basically all things being equal, they were gonna make money out of this, this deal. And so we really have to, I think oftentimes again, really look at the, the devil is in the details of so many of these things. And you need to look at the terms of how investments are structured. You need to look at the way that corporates use their CSR budgets or their CSR mandates to perhaps benefit themselves in different ways to really understand whether the actions that people are taking are more performative or sort of PR related or whether um, they're truly making a commitment that will, will have meaningful change going forward. Yeah, and it's, it's so important to realize the duty of a lot of these big tech and also just generally companies all over the world, whether or not they're technology companies and their duty to the environment and to the people. And I love that you mentioned performative activism and performative pledging, because there's a certain hypocrisy in that, where, like you mentioned, where they, they already have that obligation and then they just make it appear as though they're doing something for the benefit of society and for social justice. And so with regards to, again, to bring it back to big tech, what do you think about the responsibility of companies such as Apple in committing to sustainable practices, not only locally, but also globally? Because with, to go back to performative activism, are these companies being hypocritical in their sustainability goals, seeing as they may already have an obligation or are simply using it for the sake of greenwashing? I mean, so I've never been a 
CEO of a company. So I feel like I can't, clearly not one as large as Apple or any of these other ones. So I actually don't envy them. I think it's a very hard job. I think, I also think that what we tend to forget, we, we place a lot of emphasis on corporations and sort of corporate actors and what they can do. And clearly that's really important, but also we need to look at, I think, the, the second sort of side of that coin is the financial structures that incentivize the behavior. And unless you reform those financial kind of incentives and structures, it's very difficult for corporates to not act in this way because they have investors breathing down their neck constantly about quarterly returns and things like that. So, but I do, so I also have some friends that work in corporates that are doing really interesting things around like circular economy, or I have a friend that is the global sustainability head of Danone, and they've been a leader in, uh, in really trying to think about, yeah, trying to, trying to lead on circular economy, economy, particularly with their like water bottles and different things. And so I do think that because some corporations like Walmart are actually, if they were a nation state, they'd be like the 26th largest nation in the world. And so the, the outsized influence that a corporation like that can have if they choose to make a decision that's um, truly leading in terms of trying to, trying to make progress in these areas can be really enormous and very impactful. And they can be a market signaler to others to, to do the same. I think, I do think that it's difficult sometimes for, for them to make those kind of moves if it is going to be extremely if, if it's going to have a huge loss to, to profits, again, because of the financial sort of incentives that we have right now. But, but I do think that there, I do think that there is actually some meaningful work that's happening. But it's also interesting because you get guys like Paul Pullman, who used to run Unilever and was clearly very interested in trying to do something different. But I think he, he left because he realized that within the structure of Unilever, it was like very difficult to try to get the work done that he wanted to, to get done because it's very difficult to work within the systems to try to reform the systems, right? Sometimes it moves a little bit too slowly at a glacial pace. I also have another friend that like, as an example, was working with Apple where they, cause a lot of them have made big pledges now. They like want to, you know, be carbon neutral by a certain time, or they're going to be, one of them was working on having all of Apple Cupertino's main campus be completely zero waste. And she's done a lot of work on like materials. And, and so I think a lot of them are moving in the right direction in those ways, but also it can be a little bit hypocritical because I think as the reviewer said in your Amazon review, or sorry, in the Apple review that even if Apple, let's say, makes its headquarters totally zero waste and it becomes totally carbon neutral and all these things, which I don't think I don't know how they do that. That sounds very hard. They still have a business model that's inherently built on extraction and consumption, right? And and constantly making us buy the, the latest iPhone, which uses all kinds of really, you know, raw materials that usually are like involve slave labor and and different things around the world. And so, yeah, so I think it's, without changing the fundamental incentives of the business structure, it makes it very hard to make meaningful change if that's, if the aim of the business is still going to be predominantly extractive. So since we're on the topic of corporate sustainability and responsibility, a concept that's recently risen in popularity as a, as a way of ensuring this, is this concept of stakeholder capitalism. So I know you talked about this a lot in your book and many other works you do, but what are the dangers of accepting stakeholder capitalism as like the picture perfect solution to all of this? 
Oh, yeah, sure. So I just recently wrote an article because I think this idea of win-win and how people, particularly investors, but now corporates talk about, you can do good and make a profit at the same time is certainly true in some instances, but it's also very not true in other instances. And I think that we, it's a very dangerous notion in my mind because, yeah, I just, I think that that can very easily be co-opted into adopting sort of the things that existing power brokers want versus really challenging challenge, challenging corporate power in different ways that will actually harm or be hurtful to investors or to corporate actors and but benefit other swaths of society which need to happen the easiest example i can give is like impact investing a lot of times people use credit products right and they're like oh this is a great win-win where we're going to loan to we're going to do micro lending in india or we're going to we're going to loan to underrepresented groups in the us but it's great because you're having an impact and you can make money and so but you have to question why in the world should a rich wealthy investor be making, let's say 10% off of an investment, loaning to someone who has very little resources and has to take a loan out at then like 15%. Anyways, I could like go on a tangent about that. But the point is, the point is more that, that I think this, this narrative around win-winism is very, very dangerous. And when I see groups like stakeholder capitalists um, saying, you can have your cake and eat it too, and there's zero sacrifice that you have to make in order to make the world a better place, I just have to question that narrative. I just don't think that it's realistic or nuanced in any way and uh, it needs to be challenged. Because we're almost out of time. And Carrie and, and, and Iman, thank you so much for a great job. Uh, thank you. And Denise, thank you so much for spending your time with us. I just want to say that you know, a lot of the topics that you're raising are naturally raised by our reviewers when they write reviews. And so it's, it's really refreshing to hear someone from the outside uh, come in and, and, and kind of dovetail with some of the concepts that's that very often students are discussing themselves. So really appreciate uh, you showing up and, and having a conversation with us. Well, I really appreciate what you're doing. And, and if you're already having these conversations, I can guarantee you, you're already vastly ahead of so many people that are in the quote unquote sustainability space. So I look forward to you all taking up those positions in the market after you graduate and hopefully changing a lot of these dynamics. So well done. And, and thank you. Yeah, thank you, Iman and Carrie, for such great questions and insightful questions and insights and have so appreciated being here. So yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch, I, I think you can find me online. I've got a website where you can contact me or I'm on Twitter. That's my one social media thing I do. But yeah, happy to be in touch further as well. Great. Thanks, everybody, for attending and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.